I thought I'd uh, talk a little bit about uh, what the Buddha points to as our object of faith, what we take, what we have confidence in. Last night I talked about placeholders, and uh, one of the obvious placeholders in the Buddhist tradition is um, a monastic, a monk or a nun. And you might remember from the stories that uh, when the Buddha was a prince, before he became a practitioner and had his deep insight, he saw, you know, somebody old, somebody sick, somebody dead. And then the fourth messenger he saw, he saw an ascetic. And that that was the cause for faith to arise in him. Uh, Seeing that somebody who looked serene and happy had left behind all the things that he was focusing his life on, you know, like strength and uh, the ability to fight. He was a warrior, of course, and uh, rule people and all the wealth. That person had left behind. And another famous character from the Buddhist tradition, King Ashoka, who lived several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, a great king. They used to think he was a mythological person until they did some digs and they started to find these pillars that uh, the legend said that Ashoka had built these big pillars with the Buddhist sayings on them all through his kingdom. And so then they realized it wasn't just a legend, it was an, a historic king. But uh, he was a ruthless king and really bent on taking over all the land, as most kings seem to do (laughs) or want to do. And uh, after one especially brutal battle, he saw a Buddhist monk walking through the battlefield. And just that image awoke something in him. So the idea of a monk or a nun or an ascetic is... uh, as a symbol, as a placeholder, is for renunciation. And so this points to uh, how, where we direct our faith. So the path is renunciation, but the, the object then is not this world. I mean, the whole idea of renunciation is not just to let go of our hair or to let go of our sexual activity or to let go of our, uh, our wealth. But it, those are just symbols for a deeper kind of letting go. So letting go of the world. Now, that, you know, we think would mean death, but it's not letting go of the world, it's letting go of the identification or attachment to the world. So, this is referring to a very particular angle on the mind or angle on the heart, this heart-mind of renunciation or non-attachment. And there's a beautiful formulation in Tibetan Buddhism that I think is helpful in thinking about this heart, this mind that we take refuge in, the mind or the heart that has renounced attachment or identification. And in the Tibetan Buddhist formulation, 
the nature of the mind, the essential nature of the mind is uh, of empty essence. So you go look and you don't find anything there in terms of a thing. You don't find anything there. But it's also luminous. It has a luminous nature, which often we'll refer to um, quality of awareness. Luminous means that it illuminates objects, illuminates phenomena. So the mind is empty of anything. It illuminates all things. And the last, sometimes it's translated as unstoppable compassionate action. And another way, another time it was translated as manifold capacity, infinite capacity. So the nature of the mind. And so we're not thinking theoretically, but right here, right here at the center of our experience, the nature of this heart right here, this mind right here, is this emptiness. There's no thing to be found in the mind or heart, nothing that can be grasped as something that lasts, that continues. And it has this luminous quality that allows things to be known. All things are being known. See, normally we think if things are being known, there's got to be a something doing the knowing, something that's really there. But when we look, we don't actually find that something. We do find that things are being known, but we don't find the something that's doing the knowing. And then the other aspect that's maybe a little trickier to understand is this manifold capacity or appropriate action. Out of this empty nature, this luminous quality, comes appropriate action, a, a, a very nimble, creative response to life. So to get a sense of the empty nature, we can ask this question that Joseph Goldstein asked. What is a thought, an emotion, a sensation? What is the nature of experience free from the proliferation of concepts? So we can just look now. This is a good place to reflect. What is the actual nature of experience free from the proliferation of our concepts about it. So it's worth, I think, especially for some of us, some people will find it more valuable than others, but, I, but it is worth reflecting to some degree on the nature of the mind, even if it seems uh, abstract or theoretical. Because it, it helps us understand the path, it helps us understand 
the, what we mean by Buddha in Buddhism. You know, we, we conventionally think that I'm looking for freedom, but from a Buddhist point of view, there isn't somebody who gets freedom. It isn't that Mark gets enlightened. It's more that there are moments of enlightenment, meaning there are moments when this heart, mind, isn't confused. But then that's also a moment where there isn't a somebody who's enlightened. They don't happen together. The somebody enlightened and a moment of freedom don't happen together. There's an interesting interview um, with Mother Teresa where the, some of you have heard me say this, where the journalist asked, what do you say to God? And Mother Teresa just responded, I just listen. And then the journalist asked, well, what does God say to you? And she said, he just listens too. And then after a few seconds said, and if you don't understand this, I can't explain it to you. And this is especially poignant after reading the recent letters, you know, where uh, looking for a voice, looking for some kind of more concrete interaction, but finding silence. There's some interesting studies now in physics where they talk about this. There's, I got this, I forget who gave it to me, but there's uh, one of the well-known physicists um, in string theory in New York City. It's an interview with him. And he's talking about how they found that when they look at all the various spins of the different galaxies, that they balance themselves out. You know, there's one spinning this way, and then there's another one spinning this way, and then maybe one spinning this way, and another one spinning this way. And when you add up all the positive and all the negative, they cancel each other out. We wondered why. Why do all these physical phenomena always produce a zero sum? The probable answer is that space, time, and everything around us comes from nothingness. Nothingness has zero charge, zero spin. So it's logical that our universe has zero spin and zero charge. Now, this nothingness isn't a problem. I mean, it seems like a problem, but it's only a problem because we don't understand it. Clearly, something's happening here. But because we're, the mind is fixated on this happening here, it tends not to ever notice what else is true. And because we only have half the picture, we're confused by the half of the picture we do see. And we express our confusion by getting attached to this half of the equation, so to speak. So uh, in our group earlier today, I forget which one, um, but in one of the groups, I talked about how um, you know equal and opposites are coexisting here. And so uh, form and emptiness are playing with each other. And so when the mind 
when the heart goes back to zero, you know, in a moment of non-contention, non-grasping, non-clinging, non-attachment, not turning things into good and bad, then the heart-mind goes back to zero. We call it a moment of liberation or a moment of freedom, freedom from the self-centered dramas. So when the mind does that, then all things are illuminated. Right? So there's the emptiness of that self-centered grasping. And then all forms are illuminated for what they are, meaning we see things as they actually are, ephemeral, coming and going, dancing almost. And out of that arises appropriate action. Not passivity. We don't become a strange person who doesn't know how to be in the world. We become a creative, nimble person in the world. And we can just see this in ourselves. I mean, this is something we should learn directly from experience. Um, even, you know, after um, a good sit, for example, you might find that you're just much more responsive with your partner or the person you live with. You just know how to be with that person without getting caught up in their stuff or reacting, without sort of being afraid to say what needs to be said. The Buddha somewhere in the sutta said, whoever has turned to renunciation, turned to non-attachment of the mind, is filled with an all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. You see, the two come together. I mean, this love really is this unstoppable compassionate action or this manifold capacity. That's what love is. It isn't self-centered. If it's self-centered, it's not really love. You could call it attached love or desire. But real love is that free, natural responsivity to what's around us, to ourselves and what's around us. And it arises from non-attachment. So, I mean, it, it's almost like this perfect irony that to get everything, we have to let go of everything. I mean, it's perfect in that way. Like to really fully participate in the world and appreciate the world as it actually is. First, the gateway is we have to let go of the world or let go of our attachment, our identifications with the world. That's the, that's the threshold. And so this is both the fruit and the path that we take refuge in or that we have faith in. This emptiness, this means that there's nothing here worth grasping. So we let go. There's nobody here to grasp. It's just activity happening. So we let go, and in a sense, letting go, coming to zero, then the world is reborn. You know, that's, that's what's happening. Things are falling into zero, and they're being reborn. 
And then we just bring our mind in alignment with this natural activity. We touch emptiness, and then we realize things as they are, and we participate with things as they are freely. So we can imagine, at, at least we can imagine, and maybe we know this radical non-contention. I mean, that's really, that's both the fruit and the path, this not contending, not struggling, but not passivity. So it's a, it's, the struggle here is referring to the, something that agitates the mind, the mind grasping or fixing that this is good and that's bad. In one of Ajahn Amaro's talks, he has this great line. He says, ultimately, reality has to outweigh illusion. So this letting go, this opening and letting go, it, it overcomes any tendency to grasp. And we see that everything belongs. Even the things we're afraid of belong. And this is especially good in terms of self-acceptance because it's only when we can touch this emptiness of the mind, this emptiness of self-centeredness, it's only then that we can fully accept the personality and the conditioning of the mind. Otherwise, we're always going to have a problem with our the conditioning we don't like, the body that we don't like, or the situation, the life situation that we don't like. We're always going to have a problem with it unless we're able to touch zero. But as soon as we touch zero, we're totally okay with our personality, with our life situation, with mosquitoes, with all the imperfections. But until then, all the imperfections of our own personality and of the world around us, they'll be a problem. And that's really where our suffering is, is that um, we don't like having imperfections. And so we keep messing on the level of the world to try to get rid of the imperfections, to make our life perfect. Some of you know Stephen Levine, a well-known teacher, who's uh, uh, both a, somebody who's worked a lot with people near death, but he's also a Vipassana teacher. He originally studied with Neem Karoli Baba, this Hindu master, but uh, later studied um, Vipassana, taught Vipassana. And he has this book, a recent book, I think, called Unintended Sorrow. Some of you know Craig Vollmer. He typed up some notes from this book. I didn't actually read the book. But I've, uh, I've studied with Stephen Levine a little bit, gone to a couple of his retreats. Read a couple of his books. He's a wonderful teacher. But he talks about this idea of perfection, which we get trapped in. He says, perfection is a nightmare of the self-oriented mind. Liberation is the nature of an all-accepting heart. The difference between bondage and freedom can be felt in the space between perfection 
and liberation. When we liberate ourselves from the insistence on perfection, we see that the perfectionist is often incapable of experiencing those moments of spontaneous perfection. I remember when Ajahn Chah visited Ajahn Sumedho in England after he had set up the first monastery there, and uh, one of the lay disciples had done a portrait of Ajahn Chah from a photograph, I guess, and this lifelike portrait with the Thai jungle in the background, so we had all the leaves and, you know, and this lifelike portrait of Ajahn Chah sitting in samadhi. And Ajahn Chah walked in the lobby where this big portrait was, or painting was. He looks at it for a few seconds, and then he said something like, uh, perfectionists really suffer. Because <laughs> the painting was so lifelike, I guess. And this is, uh, this is something we can recognize. Now, any uh, idealizing of perfection is real suffering. And it's so easy. I mean, one of the things we really get when we go on retreat is all of these habits really stand out because we see how painful they are. They have this idea of what our meditation should be like or what our retreat experience should be like or what the community should be like you know, or what the teacher should be like. And as we start to see these things up close and personal, like our own mind up close and personal or our community up close and personal, you know, and we just start seeing imperfections. And our mind doesn't behave itself. That everybody's human <laughs> and imperfect. And uh, then it makes us really wonder about this path. I thought this path was a path to perfection. But it isn't a path to perfection, it's a path of liberation. We're liberating the heart. We're finding freedom, not in perfection. We're finding freedom with conditions as they are. That's really different. And this requires touching that, um, touching that emptiness. Intuitively, over time, having a sense that Although there is this luminosity, things are being known. There's nothing behind that. It's just the activity of things being known. And being afraid of that is just another thing being known. And there's nothing behind that fear either. It's just something being known. So it's actually not a problem, as it might appear. As soon as it appears to be a problem, just notice that that's just something being known too. So this is the recognizing the nature of mind or the nature of freedom, which is our ultimate refuge. In this direction is our refuge. Maybe I'll share a little Ajahn Sumedho who has a way of making things a little bit more practical. He says, Buddha wisdom is something that we use in our meditation, not something we attain. It's a humbling kind of wisdom. It's not fantastic. It's the simple wisdom of knowing that whatever arises passes away and is not self. It is knowing 
that the desires going through our minds are just that. They are desires. They are not us. Wisdom is living as men and women, monks, nuns, Buddhists, Christians, or whatever, using the conventional realities of gender, role, class, and so forth, but understanding these realities as mere conventions. Or we could add, from what I've been saying, something being known. And he goes on, Wisdom lets us see that they are not the ultimate truth, so that they do not delude us. Buddha wisdom is that which knows the conditioned as conditioned and the unconditioned as the unconditioned. It's as simple as that. You just have to know two things, the conditioned and the unconditioned. When you are meditating, don't try to attain, but just open up to your intention for meditating. When you suddenly awaken to the fact that you're trying to get something out of it, that is a moment of enlightenment. With an open mind, you begin to see what is really happening. But if you sit for a year trying to become and attain, you will feel terribly disappointed at the end of it. You will have lost everything because you don't have the right attitude. You will not have the wisdom to learn from failure. So given this nature of the mind, the, the one natural question is, well, is there a contradiction between a sense of trust or faith or resting in awareness, resting in present moment awareness, and a sense that there's a path or a goal? So the resolution of those two things is there is a path, but the path is non-contention or this resting in awareness. Uh, for one of the groups today, I mentioned Ajahn Mun, who is the, the founder of the Thai force tradition, which has been a big influence uh, the Dhamma in the West now. And uh, Ajahn Chah was a student of Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Amaro, the nuns and monks of Amaravati, Bayagiri. So there, this is all in the Thai force lineage, even Sinisro Bhikkhu, who's written so many wonderful books that we've used at the center. And he has this, uh, I think it's called, uh, what did he call it? Let's see if I can find it here. Ballad of Liberation from the Five Khandas, the Five Aggregates. So another way of saying the Five Aggregates is the mind and body. So Ballad of Liberation from the Mind and Body. And you've got to remember, this guy is, in some ways, the definition of fierce in terms of how he practiced and just uncompromising back to the basics. He, he sort of rejected what had become a state religion in Thailand at the time and basically took off for the hills to practice as he understood the Buddha and the original practitioners practiced, just learning from their own mind, not relying on books and study so much. And uh, so this is, you know, this is so, him summing up his practice. 
Wanting what's good without stop, that's the cause of suffering. That's his opening line. Wanting what's good without stop, that's the cause of suffering. It's a great fault, the strong fear of bad, right? Because he's just pointing out what comes with wanting good is the strong fear of bad. Good and bad are poisons to the mind, like food that inflame a high fever. The Dharma isn't clear because of our basic desire for good. Desire for good, when it's great, drags the mind into turbulent thought until the mind gets inflated with evil and all its defilements proliferate. The greater the error, the more they flourish, taking one further and further from the genuine Dharma. So one of the reasons um, Theravada Buddhism is often thought of as kind of dry is there is this flavor that of being careful about idealism, being idealistic about the path, because we can turn it into good. As soon as we turn it into good, we're afraid of bad, of not that. And then we're in this war again. So then the path, you know, the path to this liberation is looking out for good and bad and seeing those, what we're taking for good, taking to be good and we're taking to be bad, just see them as Dhamma. It's just something being known. So if we have pain in the body, if we're not careful, we're going to immediately assume it's bad. Or if we have a lot of painful emotion, we're going to immediately assume it's bad. Or if we have a, a taste of freedom, some ease, or maybe during the mudita practice this afternoon you had a lot of warmth and maybe some joy even. And if we're not careful, then we think that's good. But we can't grasp onto anything or push anything away without creating a war. That's just how it is. We have to let everything resolve itself. Remember this uh, image from the the physicist uh, who studied string theory. You know that everything cancels each other out. Good and bad, they cancel each other out. As soon as we make our spiritual path idealistic, we have a shadow side that we're afraid of, that haunts us, literally haunts us. We're afraid of being the bad yogi, the bad meditator, not good enough. I mean, think about how much weight we drag around in the form of fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, fear of not being liked, not being holy enough, not being pure enough. And all of that arises because we're trying to be good. So in Buddhism, there's always this uh, this understanding that the ends and the means, they really play together. You can't really tease them out. 
the way we practice is an expression of freedom. And freedom is in how we practice. You know, in Zen, you hear a lot about this. It can even drive you a little batty. Where they talk about, you know, the, that Sazen, Shikantaza, the basic form, is an expression of enlightenment. But it's a really important point that we're practicing freedom. So we're, that means that when we're sitting or walking or going about our day, we're practicing non-contention. And this is beautiful uh, essay or talk that Ajahn Armo gave at Abhayagiri. This is also in the Thai Forest tradition. Venerable Jyotipala, who visited, who's visited many times, uh, is there at Abhayagiri near Ukiah. Is it Ukiah? Is that how you pronounce it? In Northern California. And uh, in this, in this uh, talk that Ajahn Armo gave, non-contention with Mara. And it was right before the war in Iraq began. And so he felt compelled to speak on that. And uh, he talked about, you know, how there's so many military metaphors in the Buddhist teachings. You know, the Buddha was from the warrior caste. And so that, that may, that's a, one reason it, there might be so many warrior metaphors. But when you actually look at how the, the Buddha fought his battles, it's very instructive. And uh, w- one of the things that happened all the way through the years of the Buddha as a teacher is he would encounter Mara, the force of delusion. Right? So the Buddha wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, out of Mara's reach. I mean, Mara still arose, but it wasn't a problem anymore. Because when Mara arose, when the forces of delusion in his mind arose, the bad habits, he saw them for what they were. Mara, I see you. And his his way of dealing with Mara wasn't to fight Mara, although Mara would tempt him, right? Just like our mind tempts us, challenges us. But the Buddha didn't pick it up. One time, usually the the way the story goes is the Buddha will say something like, Mara, I see you, and then Mara will sulk away. Oh, the Buddha knows me. And then one time he said, one time he said something like, uh, you might as well poke a rock with lily stems as he was sulking away, meaning that no matter what I do, it doesn't, it doesn't get the Buddha. He doesn't pick it up doesn't feel threatened by me. Another time, uh, a lot of times in the discourses or in the course of the Buddha's teaching time, um, of course, Hinduism at the time or the religion, the main religion at the time was what today we call Hinduism. And it was run by this priestly caste, the Brahmins. And they had this oral tradition of, of teachings and they wouldn't let anybody else know about it and it's sort of a way to preserve themselves and they had a lot of power in the culture and they would of course challenge the Buddha because the Buddha wasn't teaching their uh, their mantras or their um, verses and so they would come and challenge him and one person came and the Buddha responded I pro- proclaim 
such a teaching that advocates not quarreling with anyone in the world. And this guy was very disappointed because what they would usually do is engage somebody in debate and invest them in the debate. So because we're not relying on philosophy, but we're relying on a direct experience, it actually doesn't matter what anybody, if someone disagrees with us, if our experience tells us something, it just doesn't matter. You know, if we fly around the world, or this kind of classic, classic example, it doesn't matter who tells us the world is flat. It doesn't matter if everybody or the most you know, regarded person in the world tells us, no, the world is flat. It doesn't matter because we've seen it for ourselves. So we don't feel like we have to argue with anybody. At the end of the article, after making the point that it's important, that it, uh, this non-contentious doesn't mean passivity. And again, the, way, the one way to think about it is touching zero allows us to respond. You know, this is almost a cliche. We do this all the time. You, you know, let me sleep on it. I mean, that's basically the same thing. Instead of deciding impulsively what we should do, we all have some kind of common sense about well, let me just sit with it for a while. Or just take a breath. So this is just a more profound movement in that same direction of touching the place where it's kind of a humility, like stepping outside of good and bad. Got to get it right. Have to make the right choice. Some of you know that for a while, I still do it occasionally, but for a while, I did it pretty regularly. Um, in order to make decisions, you know, I could always think about, well, maybe this or maybe that. So for a while, I just told myself, I'm just going to flip a coin. And before I did it, I told myself, I, I, I really took it seriously. I said to myself, like, if you're going to do this, Mark, then you got to really do what the coin says. So don't flip the coin unless you're really ready to let go. It was so freeing to just flip a coin and to have relatively important decisions decided. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'd probably shock you if I told you some of the decisions I made that way. <laughs> it even amazes me sometimes. But it's really the same thing. It's just sort of trusting that the, the intelligence of the universe is beyond this idea of good and bad, right choice, wrong choice. It doesn't exist like we think it exists. And so it, there is this radical trust involved. And that even, even like taking a breath involves some trust. You know, it involves the trust that after this breath, the two choices will still be available to me. That somehow conditions won't arise to sort of take one of those choices away and then I'll be screwed. I'll be left with only one choice. So we can uh, practice stepping back. And 
this is uh, Ajahn's, uh, Ajahn Armaro's um, way of talking about this. He says, the fundamental gesture of Buddha, and here he's not talking about the historic Buddha, but this quality of the mind, when the mind is at zero or not grasping, the fundamental gesture of Buddha is that of being faithful to reality. Pure presence and absolute non-contention. And that gesture can produce a miraculous responsive effect. When the Buddha breaks back into the void, the universe bursts into bloom. The response and the way are entwined mysteriously. And the action or stillness that springs forth from that gesture will intrinsically embody the very best that can be done. And that is a place where we can develop tremendous faith. The more we let go and trust our life to respond and see beautiful responses, the more we trust, even though we don't know what we're trusting, that's the thing that makes Buddhism different than like a monotheistic religion, where we have a very uh, specific concept that we practice trusting. Here, we're developing confidence or trust, but not in a thing. I mean, we can give it a name. We can call it nature, Buddha nature, the way things are, Dhamma, Dharma. But it isn't a thing that we trust. What we trust, in a sense, is the letting go, or we trust the non-grasping, not turning things into good and bad. So with this faith in emptiness or non-grasping or faith in the way things are, as everybody here I'm sure knows, it seems like it takes a lot of patience. But it takes a lot of patience because we don't have perfect faith. I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow, but the Buddha is very clear that until we know from our direct experience, our faith shouldn't be that this path, the path that we practice, we shouldn't have faith that this is the only way. We should only have faith that this might be the way. This is worth checking out. Because until we have direct experience, until our faith is perfect or our experience is deep, we don't know. And that's just how it is. That we're on the fence and we have to acknowledge that's how it is for us. And so that's why patience is so important.
Joseph Goldstein tells us a lot. He brings us up a lot on retreat, or at least he used to. Um, just telling the story of his own time in his practice, where just being frustrated about the paper unfolding. And he just had this insight, I think it's a pretty deep insight, that our job isn't to make something happen, like enlightenment happen or insight happen. Our job is to show up. That's it. Our only job is to keep showing up. Sitting, walking, showing up in the present moment, opening up to the present moment. That's it. That's our only job. It's our crucible. It's where everything happens. If we just keep opening up, everything else takes care of itself. If we keep second-guessing, wanting to step back from that practice of showing up and analyze it or doubt it, it's like another example he gives is when he was in first grade and they were growing carrots and wanting to dig to see if the seeds are growing. And it, you know, of course it gets in the way. And this is like wondering if we had a good sit. Or, you know, was this a good retreat or was this a bad retreat? I mean, I know we do that, but it shouldn't be done except in a lighthearted way, you know, to laugh at ourselves or each other. Because we don't really know. We talked about this in the group uh, yesterday about getting on the bus with the shades down. And the bus is just sort of cruising along. And we don't know where we're at. And the, the path seems to kind of have a lot of ups and downs in it. So even people who may be far along can really go through dark times. And people who are brand new can have very light, beautiful times. So all that's going to do, that second guessing, is we're going to get attached to the good times and averse to the difficult times. And that's exactly the opposite direction of practice, which is not turning things into good and bad, including our practice. It's about not contending with conditions. It's this radical reorientation with the world. So instead of basing our happiness on the world of conditions, we're letting go of that as a cause for our happiness. Disenchantment with conditions. Now, when we hear that, disenchantment with conditions, it sounds so like, how could I trust that, have faith in that? But if you actually practice this, you realize it's really wholesome. It's like really nice. Like to have a few moments of being really present, awake with the breath, in a non-contentious way though, not attached, not controlling the breath, it's a really beautiful experience. Or to be just walking without trying to do it right, without wondering what people are thinking about you, it's wonderful to just walk when you're walking. Or to eat a meal without, you know, wondering, judging if you're eating too much or too little or the wrong foods or the right foods. Proud of yourself for having so much carrots and staying away from the brownies. <laughs> you know, we create hell over and over again for ourselves in so many different ways. So this uh, 
patience is not just uh, a grim endurance. It's really an expression of, of profound wisdom. I mean, at first it might be more like grim endurance, but it, mani- it really needs to manifest as uh, a wisdom. One of the ways I thought of this is uh, when the path, when our life seems long and difficult, you know, the movement towards quote-unquote liberation, so not even perfection, just being free, just acceptance. When that seems very distant and, and our life seems to be requiring a lot of patience from us, what allows for that real patience is uh, uh, insight, which is that um, that the freedom is already here, that the experience of of weight is already empty. Now, I still feel weight. I still feel entangled in my life. I still feel angry or craving. But there can be a seed, even if it's just a seed, of wisdom that says, not so, or not as it appears to be. Even in the midst of our difficult moment moments. And I, the image I like uh, I just thought it, they did it so well. And it's already, the movie's already dated, but you probably remember, some of you at least, uh, the movie with Jodie Foster. I think it's called First Contact. I believe it was written by Carl Sagan. And it's an interesting movie for a number of reasons. But the part I'm referring to, they, they got some information from another um, intelligent being from, I think, even another galaxy, certainly far away. And uh, they picked it up. Jodie Foster is a scientist listening to deep space and gets this message and the powers that be build this amazing contraption to uh, send somebody to meet these intelligent beings far, far away. And Jodie Foster gets picked to do it. And uh, they don't know how the contraption works. They, it's this amazing thing, machine, but they have no idea how it works. They don't understand how it works, but they just they know how to follow directions, so they built it. And then she sits there, and they just assume that somehow she, they're gonna, it's going to shoot her out into space really fast, and she'll get there. But they have no idea. So, so it's just some sort of magnetic thing doing this, spinning around, and and uh, you you get the sight of Jodie Foster there in the little place, and it's like a, opens up a wormhole, and from the outside nothing happens. The thing just sort of falls into a puddle underneath it. And they think they somehow didn't follow the directions right. But Jodie Foster ends up there. And this is like, uh, this is what faith does for us. When we, when we have a sense of emptiness, then that means that even the darkest moments of our life are empty. And, and, and even the most beautiful moments of our life are empty. We have to have both. <laughs> you know, just get the dark side being empty, and and we get to keep the good side. <laughs> so what that leads, you see how that really evokes a kind of coolness and peacefulness in the mind. Like we don't, we can be really light in this world of causes and conditions. That contention doesn't really make sense, and this allows us to be really patient with difficulty. Even if we're still on the fence, which I'm assuming we're all on the fence, meaning 
when it's dark, when it's difficult for us, it still stings. Even if to some degree we understand that the stinging is just stinging. It's, it's uh, just something being known, right? So we can use those mantras, Buddhist mantras, just something being known, just stinging being known. This is how it is. Can this be okay? But these mantras keep the faith alive, keep the confidence that it isn't what it appears to be, or it is and it isn't. Keeps the mystery alive, which keeps us in the game. And the game is to keep opening, to keep showing up. This is how it is now. This is back to uh, Stephen Levine's book, Unattended Sorrow. And he says, instead of getting lost in the ordinary grief that comes from being human, we start to note the same old obstacles to our happiness, mentally labeling them with big surprise, anger, anger again, big surprise, fear again, big surprise, self-interest again, even big surprise, sorrow again. We attend our sorrow, we attend to our sorrow by bringing it into focus, even calling it by name, so that it can no longer hide below our ordinary level of awareness, pulling the strings of our emotions and sometimes surprising us that we act as we do. And then later he says, when the impatience born of not trusting our natural evolution arises, pushing against time with concepts of perfection, it is useful to remember, as the saying goes, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Patience has many of the qualities that compose the state of loving kindness. We begin to meet with mercy that which we have patiently rejected with judgment. The process of liberation softens the belly and opens the heart to quiet the mind and expose the grace that is our birthright. So tomorrow I'll talk about, um, in Buddhism we have the triple gem, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and also talk about prayer. And I'll come back to this point about the reasonableness of the Buddhist teachings. Let's just take a couple minutes, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.